When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Good is the warmth of summer, once asked the American novelist John Steinbeck, without the cold of winter to give it sweetness. Scottish League Championships are so often shaped by the season's toughest spell. In nine of the twelve seasons during this period, Rangers were significantly stronger over the autumn and winter, and especially the latter. With all seasons being split into four quarters and all points adjusted to three for a win, the third quarter, covering December to February, derived the most points on average, with 2.3 points per game being won between 86 and 98. With the weather and pitches at their worst, it really is the endurance phase of the season, but with European competition either on pause or a distant memory and the League Cup taken care of, the focus can almost entirely be placed on league business, and this is where Rangers thrived. Given the start to 89-90, the middle two quarters of the season needed a massive response, and by December, Sunnis' side were going into overdrive. At the start of the month, Rangers were in second place, two points behind the leaders Aberdeen, but by the 3rd of February they were seven points clear at the top as they delivered a level of consistent pressure that the rest of the challengers couldn't deal with. Most notably, it was the key matches against the chasing pack in which they proved to be unshakable. To discuss the winter of content in 1989-90, I'm joined by Andy McGowan. How are you, Andy? In a new office, I believe, tonight. (laughs) Yeah, I'm great. Thanks, Martin. And on their special Easter weekend in Greece, how are we, John Cowden? So, yeah, good to be back again. Um, another interesting winter. Not a winter, winter of discontent, but they rarely were. No, indeed. Um, let's start with a signing. Uh, and it's something that David and Alan and I discussed briefly last week, and I'm, I'm keen to get your, your thoughts on this as well. Uh, we, we said goodbye to Ray Wilkins um, in November, uh, late November of, of, of 89. As soon as, as we talked about last week, had had made mention of the fact that, that you know, Rangers struggled to switch from the physical demands of the Scottish Premier Division to the more technical demands of, of Europe. It's too big, a, uh, too big an adjustment. Um, he has experimented, Andy, in the first half of this season with quite a technical midfield. Walters and Stephen are mainstays now. Um, uh, Walters being the out-and-out winger, I guess. Stephen never like that, more of a right-sided midfielder, but both very cultured, both very technical. Wilkins the mainstay of, of that midfield, which has meant you had either Ian Ferguson or John Brown um, as a, a worker uh, around Ray. Um, Rangers were linked with John Collins, but for reasons that we, we, we discussed last week, that, that, that never um, came to fruition. However, there were other ball-playing technical midfielders that, that, that Sunis could have looked at. He didn't. He chose Spackman. No shortage of skill there, but he, what by Sunis' own admission, was a worker and gave him something that, that Ray Wilkins didn't. Despite the observations that Sunis has made, about what Rangers needed to move into that, that next level, that, that next development, that next evolution. I think he bottles it here, and he goes to what he knows best, what he knows will work in Scotland, and therefore we can never really shake the demands of this weekly grind. Uh, aye, because, I mean, Sparkman's a funny player in that you look back, and he was actually 
a really, really good box-to-box midfielder. Um, a really good all-rounder, really adaptable, but you'd probably think him as an industrious midfielder before uh, a technically brilliant midfielder like Wilkins was that went before him. But, I, I mean, this is a guy that played in one of the best, or part of the squad in one of the best Liverpool teams ever. Um, my mind was playing tricks me. I thought we signed him from Liverpool, but I've since discovered it was actually Queen's Park Rangers he played for after Liverpool. And my memories of Spikeman as a player are all good. Um, and I think when he signed, it was one of those classic Sunni signings at that point where he dips into the English market, which he knows so well. And at that point, we've spoken many a time on this pod about the fact that the world was our, our, our oyster and the entire English leagues were our buffet. You know, we could go and pick any player we wanted, mostly, and get them. And uh, we just kind of plucked him out uh, of the, the, the English leagues there. And he came in and he was, from day one, he was he was excellent. And you're right in that he was totally different from Wilkins. And I remember there being some eyebrows raised that it was a bit of a departure. But we soon found that he probably was a better, how can I put this, a better fit or balance to the rest of the team um, over a longer period. You know, he can jump forward to the, near the end of Spartan's career at Rangers and he was playing as a centre-half and you would never have known he was a, a midfielder. So it turns out to be a brilliant signing, but at that point in time, it was just another signing for us. And uh, but we'll speak about the impact, I'm sure. Yeah, we will. John, I'm not just. Let, let me make this absolutely clear. I love Nigel Spackman, and and in looking back, I still have a lot of affection for him. He would be a very good uh, signing for Rangers. One of Sunisi's typical moves of expediency, really. I need him to fill this 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 particular role. Things are tight in the league. We are not getting through. We're not meeting the physical battles that the lower half of the division are providing us with. Uh, so I need someone to come in and, and, and give us that, that reinforcement. It works. We're going to discuss just how it works over the course of this show. But bigger picture, relating to the bigger observations that Sunis has, has made after Munich, clearly what he's tried to do in the first half of that season with a far more ball-playing midfield. Where do you stand on, on this? Because, I, I, again, I I think he understands what needs to happen with Rangers at this moment in time, but he doesn't follow through, follow through with it, and he, he, he reverts to type a wee bit with this thing. Yes, it's... Um, what would you say? In hindsight, you would say, why didn't he do both? He could have signed both. You might see the overdraft or that, but maybe that's a symptom of the age where, like Thatcher, Sunnis and Murray had the right idea, but didn't actually the detail plan to back up. I mean, Spackman was pretty uninspiring when he came in compared to some of the signings we'd had. It's not derogatory, it turned out magnificent, but he, he didn't capture imagination. He was seen as a workmanlike player, but it's not just Wilkins. I mean, at this point, Duran's been out for a year and no idea when he's coming back. He mm-hmm. comes back in a reserve game soon, but we know how long it takes. And Derek Ferguson is on his way out for all sorts of reasons. Um, you know, the shoulder keeps popping out and these disciplinary issues. Mm-hmm. So we are lacking creativity in the middle of the park, which which you need if you're going to go, as we're talking about for the past year since Murray came in, about being part of this whole European thing. You've you got to have a degree of ambition and you say, OK, we can have Spackman for being, I think you've mentioned it already many times in this season, about beating teams at the bottom half. But if you're going to unlock the top teams, you need something special. And as I said, it wasn't just Wilkins has gone, lost Duran. And Derek Ferguson, who could have, under in another parallel universe, fitted in, hasn't. So he's leaving himself quite short in the middle of the park in terms of creativity, which isn't an issue in Scottish terms, if that's all you're worried about. But if you're going after Europe and to improve, you need something else. And that doesn't mean you don't sign Spackman. It means you, you need Spackman plus a creative midfield player. So that we we'll go back to the overdraft issue, which is expanding, and Murray's not overly overly concerned about it. But it's 
it's an issue. Rangers spent the best part of £3 million in the summer. Uh, it shouldn't be forgotten. In fact, more than £3 million in the summer. And I mean, we recouped... Uh, yeah, just over a million. One and a half. Um, so it's it's sensible-ish. We spent half a million pounds in Nigel Spackman. Again, this is, you know, 1990. Um, there's, uh, this is a, still a fair bit of money, John, to be to be to be splashing out. Would it have needed then a restructure rather than just expanding this overdraft, which yes. let's be honest, wasn't really feasible to bring in the the, the kind of quality that we're talking about. Absolutely. You don't buy a house with a credit card. Mm. You have to restructure. And I think what probably Murray didn't want to do was give up a degree of control. Mm. Because anybody putting in that kind of money would have wanted it. But you're looking at the same time, we're talking about expanding the stadium all around this winter. And it's going for planning permission. We're going to take it. And he does find money via the venture schemes and whatever else to do that. So money is accessible. I think the issue is he does not want to give up control of this toy. Which is what it is. I mean, it's not just about buying players. It's, you know, Okinawa should have been built around this time instead of Tartan. Internationalists to every cricket cricket ground in the west of Scotland. It's, um, you know, around now, do we not sell Derek Ferguson? For about seven hundred grand or something to heart, so is that much later? I mean, there's it's a, it's a, five hundred thousand is nothing at this point. It's it's something, but it's nothing. You can't do it via the overdraft, as I said. It's like buying a house with a credit card. You know, you have to have long term finances. But if you're talking about going in and playing with the big boys in Europe and you're expanding your stadium and everything else then you should be restructuring, which is probably a combination of equity coming in and longer-term debt, which he does come round to, but then the ship has sailed, and I'm sure we'll come to it in season to come. But at this point, this is the moment when you're going big, and you don't need to risk it, because this is late 80s, early 90s UK. There is money around to do these things. We are head and shoulders above everybody else in the UK because we have a stadium fit for purpose. Is there anybody else has this? Because the Taylor Report comes out yeah. now as well. Taylor Report will be... I mean, we're box seat. Soon, yeah. So, I mean, that's my view. It's... it's, it's there's no plan. And I, I, my only conclusion is that Murray doesn't want to give up control or be held to a degree corporate government's and that's not saying he was up to anything, but anybody putting in the kind of money that's required would want checks and balances. Yeah. And probably didn't want that. No, there's, there's no probably about it. So, Andy, I don't, I don't know if you've got any, any thoughts on that. Just in terms, I've mentioned before that I think this is, this is the juncture here, in theory, where Rangers it had to be now or never. Really, in terms of moving over, like we've we've done the hard bit, see the bullying stuff and see all the, the disciplinary stuff and all the red cards, and even to a certain degree the best of British policy. That's that that's what was required, and all the bombast we were required to 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 punch back. But now we're we're, we're kind of kings of the castle. We're going to now strong favourites to retain the title first time um, since seventy six. Um. And as we were going to talk about before in terms of a, a, a competition, it's so cutthroat just behind yeah. us that we, we have some space with which to work. Is that the time where Rangers do restructure differently? Um, because as we're going to find out uh, when we start to think about different different ways of doing it, that, that as John says, that, that ship has sailed. Mm. I, I think the seeds of hubris have been planted here. I don't think they're shown yet, but I think this is the start of it. Because as, as John's quite rightly said, Murray would be loath to lose that absolute control because you can we know that now because in later years and, and this pod will cover that, you know, there's money significant money comes in from 
external players like Dave King, uh, Enoch through Joe, Joe Lewis, the billionaire that owns Spurs now, and he done that without losing any control. Yeah. You know, he gave away so much, so little of the, the Rangers cake that it, it, was, it was genius in his part actually. Mm. So at this juncture, he's never ever going to go ball deep with the with the bank. And uh, to, to be fair to Sunis, you know, his trading was immaculate. It was we sold Mel Sterling for Christ's sake for more yeah. than we bought Nigel Spikeman for. Yeah. And uh, he, he had an uncanny knack of doing it. And I've referred to him in the past as being the master of the. You know, he'd have been a fantastic buy to let landlord because yeah. he, he, he could flip players like pancakes. It was fantastic at it. But I don't. The great point there about uh, Okinawa, that this was a time where he could have made hay with the sunshine because we were so far ahead in terms of the, the stadium situation. And but the all focus was on the playing staff and buying the European Cup. So I understand why it never happened. And I don't know if we as a support would have been as far sighted enough to say, right, oh actually this year you're signing nobody, but we spend whatever it would have been then five million quid on a state of our training centre. I don't know if we would have swallowed that. No, I'm not sure we would have either. But that's what good leadership uh, Can does. I just say in terms of European Cup though, if I was to put the opposite side Putting out Wilkins and shipping off Ferguson and Brian and Spikeman isn't taking you any closer. No, it's and not. we already know we're coming up short. So if you are going to the European Cup, then actually and there is no risk, as we know in this market. You give Sunnis a bit more, but which again goes out to how do you get external funding to buy mm. two or three players. Because this is because an issue. With, with, with respect to Europe, guys, yeah. with respect to the European Cup, and this is why I think the best of British is now done. It's it's put us on top of the pile and we're now a feeling that we are now the front runners here. No one knows that nine in a row is a possibility at this stage. But but we are we're going to be favourites for the title for the, the foreseeable future, right? And that, that has come through the, the Woods and Butcher conveyor belt, the, the latest of whom is, is Trevor Stephen and now Nigel Spackman. That is not getting us to European success. What you need is... Two, three, four, probably um, performers, genuine European performers that are going to cost a lot more than our overdraft can can do, and probably would cost a lot more than any any reasonable restructuring could do. And yet again, what is over <laughs> hanging over all of this are the, the changes to the rules, because Gary Stevens and Trevor Stephen are probably immovable as first team picks they are the only two what would be class foreigners until 1991 um, Butcher wouldn't Woods wouldn't um, Walters wouldn't because they were here before the summer of 1988 when they, they, they were given three years grace so you only, you only have two more spaces really and who are you getting in in December by the way as well in terms of you know genuine um, continental class that, that that didn't really happen things things happened in the summer now we, we're going to talk about Kuznetsov in in, in, in future a couple of future episodes um, which obviously was kind of tragic really um, but there are limitations as to what I think realistically Rangers can do anyway he makes Martin, his, just, sorry, sorry, so, sorry I was just going to say the glass ceiling for us just to give perspective to the to listeners, was, was Serie A. That was where we couldn't go as a yeah. club. We, we were the biggest in Britain, but Serie A was just too far out of reach. And that's where all the, the, the top class players were. All of them. All of them. <laughs> yeah. And that's why, yeah. I, I mean, I, I remember my dad used to say to me, we'll, we'll know we've arrived when we start seeing players for, for Italy. And we did that later, and we'll talk about me and all the rest of it later on. And, and it turns out that it wasn't the panacea we thought it was. But this is where we were at that point. We were the, the, the kings of Britain in transfer terms, but Serie A was where the cream of the crop were, and we couldn't get access to that market. It was too expensive. And I think that's that's the key point. I think that is a dreamland. Um, and and yeah, uh, we'll get into all that as, as we go. Anyway, he he does make his decision. He, he wants what he knows and loves best, and that, that absolutely is a Nigel Spackman player. Uh, made his debut at Tynecastle on his 29th birthday. Uh, Rangers visited the Hearts side that were just two points behind in third place. Um, Hearts started well. Eamon Bannon scored. Uh, but again, so consistent with the season, Rangers didn't panic. They just consistently and patiently played their way out of trouble. Walters hit the post before half-time. 
Then got a deflected goal uh, that brought the game level, but it was Trevor Stephen um, from a Mo Johnson assist reverse roles there, um, who who got Rangers the the win and yep. Tight margins, Rangers come through. A similar story, Tanadice in the middle of December. Um, Johnson pounced on a, a, a bad Alan Main goalkeeping error to, to grab a, a, a draw in conditions so cold that Ali McCoyce was wearing ski gloves in the second half. I don't know if you, either of you were up at Tanadice that night. Can, can testify to just how cold uh, that was. I don't know if Bucks made it through, yeah. Um, but may, a few didn't get passed off their armour because of the blizzard. And we had to come back via the Kincartan Bridge. Uh, I recall as we came out of the stadium, somebody start stadium Stanadice, um started singing "Little Old Wine Drinker," and mm. everybody was singing about the rain in California. It was, it was, you were soaked through. It was one of those. The game should never have been played. I don't think mm-hmm. um, safe safety of players, safety of your paying punter. Now, again, Mojo did. Mo, Mojo did the did the business, but it was yeah. You'd have taken a draw because I don't think you'd play much much football in those conditions. Yeah. But typical Scottish kind of weather. It's not as if it was on the TV or anything. It was just yeah, we we can pretty much play. But it was horrific. You know, I, I think there was quite a few buses had to turn back off the armour who were about half an hour further back down the road yeah. than us. Well, the Rangers bus made it and they got out with a point, as I said, which brings us up to New Year's Day and Glasgow City of Culture of 1990. How much culture there was on show at Parkhead is maybe another debate. Not really much has happened in midfield. It's been more negative than anything else. Paul McStay hasn't got going. This Backman makes a better ball. Johnston. Here's McCoy. Backman, he scored. It's a beautiful goal by Rangers. Spratman, Rangers' new signing in his debut in an old firm game. Scores the first goal of the match. A beautiful move here. A superb touch inside from Johnson to McCoy. And that emphatic finish there by Spratman. Well... Andy, uh, welcome to Nigel Spackman. What a way to announce yourself. As I said, not a game full of sophistication uh, in line with Glasgow's new status. Um, it wasn't a particularly good game, to be honest. Chris Woods made a brilliant save late in the second half from a Paul Elliott header. But it was that 14th minute goal. Uh, well, what? Spackman, Robin, a kind of dithering Paul McStay. You know, there's a perfect representation, I guess, of what Sunis was talking about. Um, you can all the technique in the world, um, but if someone smashes into you and steals the ball, it's not really worth much. Uh, and a brilliant break. Johnson involved, McCoyst involved. The space Spackman has to run into to finish that that that, that move off um, never fails to amaze me, even though I've seen it so often. And yet again, Andy Rangers just doing the biz. One nil, another one nil against the team in the top half. Uh, yeah, on the goal, you'll not see a better counter-attacking goal when Spagman started it and finished it. And, uh, you know, as far as old firm debuts go, you, you can't make much more of an impact than that. And I'd, I'd implore everybody to go and watch that on YouTube if you haven't seen the goal. Because it's, it's actually, a, you know, it's a really aesthetically pleasing goal because the way he puts it in the back of the net after a fantastic run through the middle of that non-existent Celtic defence. But... You know, we've spoken about in previous points about getting the parkhead hoodoo done and dusted, and here we were, and this was, this was to memory, this was fairly routine. Mm. And you've got a Celtic team there that are, you know, Celtic are starting, as a club are starting to free completely because um, we, we, are, we are stretching our legs away from them, and as a club, they're falling behind, and we're just going forward and forward in every sense. So it was. It was just a stamp of authority on them again at the right time of the season. It kind of epitomised the, the, um, the transfer power. You know, we lose Wilkins, it was a class act. We go out and sign another guy, and immediately he's, he's having an impact against our major rivals in, in a, a really crunch game of the season. Far less the fact that it's a New Year's Day game, which obviously has added significance. So, fantastic win. Um, I'm trying to think how many bears would be there, John. About 18,000. Do we get as many as that then? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's 60,000. Uh, uh, probably 20,000 sque- squeezed in with a, 
shall we say, leftovers or whatever. But we'd, we'd get the whole end plus at that point. We still get some of the stand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, we're probably talking 18 to 20,000. Uh, it's, it's a phenomenal feeling being in there. I mean, this is what, three in a row, unbeaten two wins in a draw. Yeah. It's beginning to think, right, we've cracked this now. We can just, we've got this lot. I was going to ask that, John, because, yes. you know, April 89, the hoodoos lifted. Rangers finally win at Parkhead. We got that draw in August. Should have won, but, you know, given the circumstances Rangers were in when they they turned up at Parkhead that day, that, that that's a victory of sorts, to be honest. And as you said, here's another one in the bag. Um, and so, so did it feel like that? Is it right? That, that, that's now, you know, April wasn't a one-off. We've, we, we, we have cracked this case here. Yes, it does. It's one of those things when, you know, when you get that result, it can either be the freak one or it just breaks everything, every barrier down and suddenly you've went through that mental block you had. And it was a mental block because we were miles better than them since soon as came. But his record until that April was... And after that, one or two games coming up, I mean, it's probably unparalleled if you like, through the 90s, just how easy it is to go there and win. Um, not always by the odd goal. We give them some hammers as well. But it just feels at this point where it holds no fears for it. Whereas, you know, even at the beginning of 88, 89, or, you know, 87, 88, mm-hmm. you're, there's a trepidation which is based on psychology rather than facts, because we're the better team. But suddenly, right, we've got it cracked, you just let this lot run around for for the ball, a headless chicken, and then we'll take it off them and we'll score goals. And really, that's what we do. The the April game was sensational because we absolutely destroyed them in that first 45 minutes. I think that gave everybody confidence and then them missing the penalty. As you see, the draw in August, September when we were bottom of the league, hadn't got a point and, you know, we'd come away with it. I think the only downside is, could we score a few more goals at the Rangers then? Because everyone you you need those opera glasses to see (laughs) see what's going down that other end. Well, there'll be plenty of those flying about, of course, with the the, 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 uh, city of culture here. Um, Andy, you made a point a minute ago just about Wilkins leaving Spackman coming in and having an an impact. How demoralising is that? Especially for Celtic, <laughs> but for others, that Rangers, and you're right about Sunis, by the way, a market trader, Thatcher's boy, he just kept doing it right. And if, if it was not right, they were moved on, and they usually moved on for no less money than they were brought in for. But it just it just seemed like every major signing that came through the door worked. And, and Rangers, you know, losing some of, of Wilkins' quality because he just wanted to be home in London. Oh, that that maybe gives us an opportunity. Who did they bring in? Oh, he scored in his old firm debut. I mean, this is just incessant. So I'd love to say it was the scouting network that we had <laughs> an impeccable, you know, data, but it, it certainly wasn't that. I, I'd probably go for the fact that it was purely Sunnis's knowledge of the market, Aye. and the chances were that if you bought somebody from the top end of England, they were going to be able to do a job in Scotland. Let, let, let's be very, very honest about it. There was. I'm trying to think of anybody that kind of didn't do I mean, we were saying guys like Jimmy Phillips, Neil Woods, Chris Van Eycom, for Christ's sake, he came through the lower leagues and they still came in and showed up, you know. Mm. Um, I think only Falco was the only one that really I can think he didn't live up to the pace because at that point, you know, the, the, the common consensus was that Scotland was a faster pace game than England. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But um, yeah, that, that, for memory, Falco was the only one I could think of didn't he? Didn't he uh, then they live with the pace. So I think it was fairly a fairly safe transfer strategy we had in, in the fact that if you're spending 500k, which is a lot of money back then, you were going to get somebody that could do it in England, could do it in Scotland. I think that was the secret. Um, I don't think there was any mere magical um, transfer genius that we're missing yeah. nowadays. And it is quite a stark contrast to what we think of now. I mean, I mean we talk about Ross Wilson and signing strategies and scouting. None of that existed there. It was purely, you know, knowledge of markets from the manager. So um, it would have been demoralising because Celtic were screaming about and they were, they were buying players 
um, as safely as they could. You know, they bought Tommy Coyne for the Scottish market. They were buying players that should have done the job, but they were nowhere near the same level as the players we were buying, by and large. So that game on the 2nd of January, Aberdeen come to Ibrox on the 6th of January. I mean, in football in terms, probably a bigger game because of, of how the league looks. Uh, John, this was a superb game of football, actually. A young Michael Watt in the Aberdeen goal would have a, a very good day. It, probably the best day he had at Ibrox. Um, we will come to that in later shows. Uh, it took Rangers a while, but eventually Aberdeen were worn down and, and, and Rangers were kind of deserved 2-0 um, winners. Uh, Dundee United will be taking apart 3-1 uh, the start of February. And you know, starting this this period, two behind Aberdeen, two points for a win, remember. Uh, Rangers are now seven ahead. It's been some winter of uh, incessant consistency, but there's, there's real elements of quality there too. Yeah, the problem we have, I guess, and again, maybe it's hindsight, is we don't blow many teams away. But we, you know, 1-0 against Celtic Parkhead, you know, we get the goal early. Aberdeen actually is the best we play, but maybe it's because we don't score for a long time or it doesn't yeah. feel like it. The game's still alive and therefore we play. But this team, if it had, if you had a criticism about it, and it probably costs us points against other is they switch off. Mm. It's too easy. Uh, and to be fair, Aberdeen were, were talking about transfer markets. Celtic spent a bit of money, but they spent it in Dross, Galloway, Catcoy. Aberdeen weren't bad in that sort of... Heelhouse. Dutch market. Heelhouse and Schnellders before Darkness came or whatever and Peekaboo. I mean, they were picking up the Van der Ark. They, had some decent, they were doing some decent business. Mm. But really, it was too easy for us. I mean... Declan is, I think this is the day they're first in the car park, uh, getting upset at their board, which sets the tone for almost the first half of the 90s. Mm. But for us, I guess the reason we played so well, it looks as if we played so well against Aberdeen is because it took so long to really, mm. you know, make a difference in goals. But usually when we got one goal, we, we shut up shop. I think when we played the top teams, this 2-0 and this 3-1 against Dundee United... I mean, that was his, That was really the show of strength up until then. It was like, we'll get a goal up and that'll do us. Well, it's, it's a very compact Rangers team. And I, I, I keep hammering home this point because I think it's important. Compared to Sunnis' other seasons, um, we score fewer goals, but we concede a lot fewer as well. This is just a very well-controlled Rangers team. Very Italian. But again, I think what he's looking for is building a team with more control because you need that in Europe. It can't be all hell for leather, gung ho, tally ho, best of British. Um, see you on the other side. It, it needs a, a lot more joined up thinking between attack and defence, uh, and a lot more cohesion. Um, and I don't think it's any surprise that you you, you see smaller numbers at either end of the uh, either end of the park. Good point though on on Aberdeen's business. I think you could. Possibly Dundee United weren't bad either. Kind of likes of mix with Patalainen and, and and guys yeah. like that. There, there were some European names starting to come in to Scotland that that were decent. None of them going to Celtic. Jack and Oski by this point not really working at all. So Rangers are very comfortable after a shaky start to the season. Let's say one reason maybe is that the long term injury thing, which had just been this been a constant story in this series guys um, not really a factor in, in this season the big injuries not really um, playing a part the way they have Ian Ferguson would be one maybe to look at um, the season limited by illness really it's a kind of glandular problem that, that only improved later in the season when he had his tonsils removed soon as very supportive of him he wanted to play Ferguson despite Ferguson saying look I'm a man down after 15 minutes I am shattered I, I can't run anymore um the other one was Richard Goff, with whom he dealt a bit differently, Andy. Goff had a foot problem right from the start of the season. Um, there was always a bit of a, is he going to play, is he going to be out? Um, very persistent. Uh, Rangers played Arsenal um, in a friendly kind of Zenith Data Cup. Uh, it was basically billed as the best of British Scottish champions against English champions. Um, so 
friendly, I don't think it was. Arsenal would win the one two one soon as not impressed. Um this was just before Christmas. And soon as frustrated Goff who was in the treatment room. And Goff wrote in his, his book, he said, look, Sunnis was never one to make allowances for injury, his own or anyone else's. He had just impatience about him when it came to injuries, as if he didn't think your body should let you down. And this is Sunnis projecting, I guess, himself. He Go back to his Liverpool career, Andy. Sunnis plays easily over 30, probably over 40 games every season. He doesn't break down. He is not an injured player. And he just assumes that, that everyone else will, 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 will be that way. So much so that when he went into the, tra- uh, the treatment room that night, he said to Goff that you're at it. Now that's a big and a bold accusation to make to another professional footballer, basically saying you're cheating me, you're cheating your teammates, you're cheating your, your club, your employer. Goff felt that night that he was on his way out because, well, what am I supposed to do? I can't fight the manager. I know what happened to Graham Roberts. I can't play for him because this is—he's called me a cheat. I can't live with that. I think he's now. Goff said he never spoke to anybody. Walter Smith was in that room as well at the time. Goff assumes that Smith had a word with Sunnis because he had a festive do not that long after um, on behalf of the chairman and Sunnis, as he was invited to do, made a, a toast really um, for the festivities. And he said, uh, I've got to apologise to a certain player because of some very unfair remarks I made to him last night. The player knows what I'm talking about, and I was really out of order with him after the game last night. Nagoff said, no, I've not spoken to anyone, so no player knew what that was about. So as soon as never mentions him by name, he's never apologised directly. As soon as would never apologise directly. But that's as much of an apology as you're going to get from Graham Soonest, I think. And for Goff, that was it. Done. And they never had a crossword again. Um, there's a bit of a sliding doors moment, Andy, given how soon as he <laughs> normally deals with these kind of things, and he would have been Oscar. Uh, it's a remarkable tale because it, it says a lot about golf, first of all, because a lesser man would have carried that as a permanent injury to ego, and you know maybe say I can't work with that guy regardless of the apology. The, the context behind it, and this isn't it, we kind of say that we could, we've obviously got different people listening to us at different age groups, but you know, as soon as his era, players played with injury, and that's why so many of that kind of era had were basically cripples in their 40s. And things were kind of changing. It's not like nowadays where players are like racehorses and the slightest niggle, they'll no, no play. But that injury that Goff had, was a persistent, and everybody used to say to him, hold on, how, how bad can a toe injury be? Mm-hmm. You know, what is that, a bunion? But he was getting boots specially made by Adidas to, to compensate for it. That's the stage it was at. And it was a bit of a mystery injury, and um, they couldn't get to the bottom of it. But it is remarkable, A, for what I say, Goff's reaction to it, and the fact that he was able to just say, well, that's the end of it. But the fact that Sunis apologised at all, and in such a public fashion, albeit he doesn't name the player, is remarkable because I think he's probably had a, a moment of sobriety where he's like, oh, Christ, I've, I've really overstepped the mark there by questioning a player like Richard Goff. And maybe he realised, you know, Goff is too important a player to piss off. This wasn't Graham Roberts who was ultimately disposable. This was Richard Goff who he had chased and chased and paid a lot of money to get him over the door at Ibrox and to burn that for fucking friendly, you know, against Arsenal. Probably, I think Smith has had a word in his ear. Something's happened anyway to, to actually realise where he's where he's went with that. Oh, I think Smith has definitely um, been involved. <laughs> this maybe a wee turning point in, in the Sunnis story, John, because as as I said before, he is remarkably sanguine, remarkably calm, a dreadful start. The the Hugh House goal, Aberdeen, you know, um, beating us up there and. Shrugging it off, said with a better team. Over the course of the season, we'll win the league. Don't worry about it. You know, there's no foot through televisions or, or anything like that. It's such a, a remarkably calm first half of the season. However, we're now starting to see the soonest that we've we've known before. That Hearts win in December that I talked about, the 2-1. Mark Walters gets sent off there. Walters has for understandable reasons, a, a difficult time at Hearts, I think. Sunnis is furious about that, furious about the, the sending off. He is involved in um, 
an argument with the referee, but he's also involved in, in a well, more than an argument. It was alleged with uh, former teammate Dave McPherson. Um, and in, in the tunnel, uh, Lothian and Baldur's police were asked to compile a report by the SFA. This is Asunas, who is still currently serving a year's touchline ban following that explosion at Tanadice um, in the February of 89 about the, the added on time, John. Um, now, he could technically defy that ban by naming himself as a substitute, but two substitutes in these days, as soon as coming to the end of his career, that, that wasn't really a luxury that he would entertain. Um, Hearts again, John, that, that, that cause or, or the, the, the opponents when, when more problems arise. This is in the February of 1990, um, because as soon as with his touchline ban is captured on STV, standing inside the tunnel, passing on instructions, um, trial by television kind of thing, uh, found to be in breach, another £5,000 fine, and a ban increased to two years. Um very draconian. Um, STV were promptly banned um, from Ibrox. Uh, actually raised in the Houses of Parliament by a Labour MP to complain about the level of competence of the SFA, grossly excessive treatment of Graham Soonis based on sleekit television evidence and the nature of a penalty shootout to decide the Scottish Cup final when a replay would be better for fans. Any idea what that MP was? Gorgeous George. Gorgeous George Gallery, who would have thought it? Um, he is, after a relative lull in hostilities, John, he's back on the warpath with the establishment, and I would suggest this is now a path where there would be no return. Yeah. But it's... He is at the vanguard, but we we have an arrogance about it is where we are taking on all comers. It's around now that Murray says, "Why are you going to spend public money on Hamden? Mm. Ibrox can be, be can do the Scottish internationals, and the teddy bears are coming out of the pram from SFA, the Glasgow District Council. I know. I mean, we are. I mean, is this hubris? I mean, this is. We're we know we are top of it. We we are the only show in town, and everybody they are falling apart on the other end of the city." Aberdeen and Dundee United have gone back to where they were. Still decent, but they cannot compete with this huge. And we have the stadium. Nobody else in Scotland has a stadium. Arguably nobody else in Britain has a stadium that can do all of this. Everybody else is facing a 10, 15, 20, 30 million mil to build the stadium. And we have it. And that is... And we're saying... And what do you see Murray's comments, you know, why should the taxpayer fund sports grounds, etc. Mm. You've got Ibrox. Sure, there might be the odd cup final where we're there, but we'll find a way around that. You get Sunnis fighting it. And he's back. Kind of coincides with Wilkins leaving. I don't mm. know how much he knew of Wilkins leaving and whether it was one of those. He knew what he was doing. He had Wilkins. He had all these, all the pieces of jigsaw was there. And then somebody's taking one of the main bits out and he's furious. In a subconscious level. I don't know, but it, the timing of it all seems to coincide around that winter period when actually having, you know, beaten rapid succession, Celtic, well, all of them, Hart, Celtic, Aberdeen, the United, you know, seven points clear. You'd have thought the pressure would be off. Why but, but get upset? Is this, uh, is this then, if we're going to play pop psychology and why wouldn't we because it's a lot of fun um he has tried to be something different the results have been mixed he knows again he knows the path he should be going down but it's it's not providing immediate response basically rangers are a bit of a, a hole we're two points behind aberdeen we're in, you know involved in a, a championship struggle and, and the winter's coming up it's time to dig it's time to get tough again, tough on the park, tough, tough off the park. I'll set the tone, uh, and we're just going to go in body teams uh, again, and really, really, you want to fight again, right? Cool, we we we'll fight you. We'll fight you on all sides because we're Rangers, and maybe that's the example because that, that that's how these approach games. There's a definite change post Wilkins about how Rangers are on the park, and the results are immediately good. Yeah, but it's a lack of patience, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, lack of it's impetuance. It's just this impetuosity. Sorry, it's yeah. just this um, guy who wants control, but no one can ever be in control. Um, if the results were good immediately, 
And as I said, uh, early February, Rangers have this this big gap uh, of seven points. Maybe when Sunis is railing and, and again causing um, scenes and noise and trouble, perhaps it starts to have a negative impact on results. Or it's perhaps because Rangers were just too comfortable. Players admitted um, as much. Um, that, that game against Dundee United to put seven clear was the 3rd of February. Rangers would draw four league games in a row and then lose to Hibs at Ibrooks 1-0 Andy Gorham a young Andy Gorham in sensational form for Hibs that day that's an incredibly bad run of form that is not championship winning form that's the kind of stuff that Twitter would be on fire for now Rangers 7 points clear at the start of that run they would be 5 points clear at the end of that run it didn't matter because the competitive nature of everything that was just beneath Rangers meant that no one could break away but it is an interesting spell um, where the minds just drifted a wee bit and um, the, the results didn't happen. In the middle of that spell, Andy, outside of the league, was of course um, the Scottish Cup. Um, what, fourth round, I guess it would be, uh, 25th of Feb at Parkhead. Um, a 1-0 defeat. Uh, again, a pretty... Poor game, this curse in the Scottish Cup that Sunis has seems to be continuing. A terrible goal. Tommy Coyne kind of scrambled it in just before half time. Um, Rangers kind of lacked energy, especially in Ferguson again. Um, Terry Butcher summoned enough energy right enough to test the hinges in the parkhead door uh, live on, on STV as Billy McNeil would have been interviewed post match. But maybe that aggression would have been better served stopping Joe Miller's low cross that the coin bundled into the net um, before John Brown kicked him back into the net. <laughs> Again, just another example of this kind of growing frustration. Um, it is an odd little gap in the season, Andy. Um, I do wonder how it would be taken now. It was... It kept Celtic delusional, mm. if we're being honest, because it was a, a, a bad day at the office for Rangers, a very good day at the office for Celtic. And a quite ferocious park here, as, as I recall. And we just had an off day. And... I don't know if it is on the day with Scottish Cup who does it. It was just one of the days where we were poor and they were well up for it. And they got the goal and we never really got to go to our first gear. Um, as frustrating as it was at the time, and it was a sore minute to you know, because we, we were feeling that we could we should be winning everything. Um, I remember, I, I wasn't there, I watched it on TV, but I remember the instant where the, the door nearly came off its hinges with Butcher mm. and, and Bill McNeil Caking his pants when it happened live on the telly. And I remember thinking, you know, we're going to be all right because you can't have that level of uh, bad losers in a dressing room for it not to come back and, and bite. So uh, it was really frustrating that the Scottish Cup thing was a, was a, a thorn on our side, to be honest. But as long as we were winning leagues, we kind of lived with it. You're making a good point there. How would it be reacted to nowadays? It'd be pandemonium, you know, hysteria. Because it would have been seen as a, a bite for a midget. You know, a, a, some, a team that shouldn't be loving with us in any format could just put us out of the cup. It was as simple as that. Bad day at the office. That, that is how I look back on it. I don't know if, if, you, if you guys would disagree. Joe, in that spell, 10th of Feb to 24th of March, four draws and a defeat from five league games out the cup to Celtic. Your memories of how the Bears were taking that. Again, I go back to probably the most important fact, which was seven-point lead at the start of that run, a five-point lead at the end, only the loss of two points. That was the problem. If we had drawn the first couple and somebody had won a couple and got close, probably we'd have still be in the cup and we'd have won the rest of the games. It was far too easy. It was complacency. The league was done. In fact, the season was done as soon as we went out of the cup. I don't think it was a bad day at the office. I think we'd mentally switched off after we'd hammered, as I said, particularly Aberdeen and Dundee United in mm-hmm. swift succession and pretty comprehensively. And I think players admit that were on, the cigars were on, and that's what it is. In terms of how we react now, actually go back to fifty-five, get put out of the cup against the Mum, League Cup, get put out by St Johnson in the Scottish Cup. Mm. There is a reaction 
but even more so than back then, you know you're going to win the league probably four of the next five seasons without even trying, because there might be one season where the wheels come off. And when you're coming from not having won back-to-back titles since 74, 75, 75, 76, and now you're comfortably cruising along, there's no pressure from the fan. There's there's less pressure. Mm. The Monday morning is horrific. The Sunday night, I think it was a Sunday game. It was a Sunday Going away night. from it, you're gutted. You've lost to this pub team. It's mm. another Diddy team in the Scottish Cup. And they were a Diddy team. I mean, you look at the, the, who they've got, it's just... I mean, and they get worse. But I think it's all down to... I don't think there'd be much of a reaction because when you're so far ahead after years of being so far behind and you're winning a league and you've got all these great players, you do forgive and you, you turn a blind eye to a lot, but the players chucked it psychologically. I mean, it's one of those things when it's too easy. I've seen it so many times. Uh, so, so the previous season, actually, you know, when we won the league and then we get beat by Aberdeen at Ibrox 3-0 and then we couldn't get up the cup. There needs to be a pressure to keep you going through the whole season. If it becomes mm. too easy, mm. it's pretty difficult to win the Scottish Cup or whatever. There has to be a real drive to get you through. If you've won the league by this was won by February, players switch off. They're human. This is too easy. Yeah. We can turn up whenever we want, and that's what catches them all season. Actually, after that first little bit, you know, they're too casual. Mm. You know, oh, well, we'll do that. I mean, David Dodds has scored loads of goals for us at this point. I mean, it's one of us three could have played up front and probably finished with third or fourth top goal scorer. Yeah. Um, it really is too easy because we are miles ahead, and that's where go back to Sunnis and his vision of how it played. If he could have taken a step back, or somebody had said to him and said, "Look, you've got three years here. There might be the odd blip." But what? Just build a team and let's mm. and you know let's try and get youth and let's see where we are in three years because there's nothing on the horizon going to challenge us over the long term. Interesting uh, to go back look at the fault that the fanzines and the reaction around this period of time because it's interesting because of just you know it's a terrible yeah. run um, and there's the of course more than a few moans but. The takeaway is that, well, a wee bit like the cup final last year, as frustrating as it is, it's the odd result, and it might just keep them in a, a kind of state of denial a wee bit. Um, Jack McGinn, Celtic chairman, um, who was starting to become under a bit of pressure about the the way that Celtic were run, their model of, of ownership and, and, and stewardship, um, he was quite bullish after that cup winning said it strikes me an awful lot of people have forgotten that with the same structure of company the club won four Premier League championships and four Scottish Cups during the 1980s so we can't be making mistakes year in year out um, they would of course lose in the final of that Scottish Cup to Aberdeen on penalties after a 0-0 draw utterly utterly drab game um, <laughs> They're not going to win another thing until 1995. Uh, and, you know, there's probably something in that, you know, the odd thing just to say, right, we're not dreadful. Things will turn around. Um, there's no need to, to try and follow Rangers' model of maybe a, a more dynamic um, single ownership board, um, which actually well, suits us perfectly well. I think the fans in... It's the closest thing you're getting to this period of time is the a collective consensus or or set of influence, you know. So we talk about Twitter nowadays and how opinions can be formed and influenced in seconds, but back then, as underground as it was, follow follow was starting to, you know, mould thinking. It was certainly moulding my thinking because I was a, a voracious consumer of follow follow, and uh, I think the other side of the city had the the, the their their kind of counterpart, it was not the view, not the Celtic view, was the same. I think, aye, Matt McGlone's thing. I think, I think McGinn was, was, I don't think that's what Celtic fans were thinking, that was him defending his position. Celtic fans were quite, you know, they knew that they had to change with the times. Um, They were, this was the last kind of vestiges of the the hierarchy at Celtic clinging on to power and trying to justify themselves. 
Um, but the fanzine, the follow follow, and whoever wrote in there were very perceptive because maybe, well, there's no maybe about it, they were right. That was probably a price worth paying for allowing them to stay in the stasis that they were because, as you say, they won nothing to 95 and it just gave us a more or less a clear run at title after title. So, uh, with hindsight, would, would, that, would that change that result? I don't know. No, you know, would, would the Scottish <laughs> Cup make, make the next five, six years of Celtic trophy drive worth it? Well, it's, it's, a, it's ah. a genuine week. I think I said this um, at the end of, of, of the last season, the, the episode four of, of, of the previous season. McNee wrote a, a piece in the, the Express before that Old Firm Cup final saying, it might not be the worst thing for Celtic to see Rangers win a treble and be sick at it, but uh-huh. they demand change because this is papering over the cracks if they win it. Yep. And it's it's just yet another one. They would get another one, of course, the following year will come to. Um, yeah, John, it's it's either willful denial or, or genuine denial, doesn't matter which, it's still denial um, that, well, we've won the one-off game again. Um Things will be rosy in paradise. The same kind of thing. Why? Why don't we have a stadium like Irox? The, the, the fans don't want that. They want this ramshackle dump because it's 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 got some kind of earthy romanticism. Yeah, I actually I, I would go back and win that game because I don't think that board would have left any quicker because they were not giving up anything. I mean they they had. They had protests, they had fans coming in late, fans not turning up at all. They were on another planet. I think there was a nice narrative of this keeps from delusional. The more rational, which you pick your percent, of their support weren't bought off by the, the thing. And the more irrational, well, yeah, they were just nuts. But it's, they're in a mess. I mean, and they would come out, was it, I don't know how it was this season, because you know, their final eight games of the season, they don't in the league they don't win any. It's four four draws, four losses. But does Jack McGinn not come out the following season and say that if the league had started at Christmas we'd have won it or something? I mean they've always got this grasp of if you if you include if you exclude all the games we lost, yeah. we would be top of the league. It's unfair, isn't it, that we'd be doing <laughs> the games they lose. Yeah. And it's all of this kind of and I think there was hubris from all of it. I mean it was glorious times. The biggest issue that Rangers fans had, as I recall, in February 1990 in Glasgow was bankruptcy because the pubs get late licences for the city of culture and instead of going straight out after work, which they did for all of January and work, wondered why they had no money left by the third week, mm-hmm. they then had to start going out. That was the biggest concern because there was no issues at all in terms of what was going to happen on the pitch. I mean, even if they'd have changed that they were three years away from building a stadium, is any English player going to come up of quality? They walk into Ibrox, a marble staircase, soonest, and then they go across the city, and we might be going to cricket grounds. They're going to Barrafield, where there's probably needles and all sorts. They're so far behind at this point, and this board is not for going anywhere. Is one of them is that Tom Grant's a stadium director, and mm. he's talking about how much they've spent in the stadium. <laughs> they really, I don't even think it's denial, I think they would have passed a lie detector test. Yeah. I think they actually believe that they're doing a good job, this is what it is, and it's those pesky Protestants again, they'll get their comeuppance. Might argue twenty years later we did, but actually it wasn't on the basis of what was happening around now. Where by we could service our debt, I don't think we were actually making much losses, no. if any. No, the, the, the you know the finances yeah. weren't an issue. It was only later all that kicked in. We were in a per- perfect situation, and it's also where you come from. My generation, you guys coming up less so because you, but all of us who'd experienced the pain, probably your father. The both of you who'd been in the 60s and then 70s and the 80s and suddenly we're the king of the hill and this is like going back to when Baxter must have been playing we're thinking you know you're turning up you know you're going to beat them you know you're going to win the title mm. there's going to be the odd blip because this is a time when 
teams would draw four, five, six games and lose four, five, six games, and you'd still be there or thereabouts in the league. It's not you can't afford to drop any points. Yeah. Points were dropped all over by everybody against everybody. It was glorious. It was absolutely glorious. The feeling that we're an establishment club again, or an establishment club on on top. Probably underlined, Andy, uh, we've talked about the Scottish Cup there, um, before the Scottish Cup quarterfinals, or before the Scottish Cup fourth round was even played, the the draw for the Scottish Cup quarterfinals was made, and it was made at Ibrox, and it was made by the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, who was invited um, into, to, to do that. Very odd, we worked with her diary, not, not the other way about. Um, and a very interesting moment. Um, she waxed lyrically about the stadium. Of course, this was not long after the Taylor Report had published its initial findings and, and Ibrox was held up as the future. Um, Rangers were held up as the future um, of British football. Soonis, who doesn't often look comfortable second best, you see him in pictures all the time with fans or whatever else or, 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 or peers and he dominates the shot um, he seemed quite happy to be second best to the Prime Minister I think Murray was beaming, not everyone was, um, you see the squad picture in the, 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 the just down at the marble staircase um, Stuart Monroe deliberately looking the other way, he thought this was an absolute disgrace um, that, that, that she was there. Mark Walters wasn't happy at all. Terry Butcher was. Just very telling uh, of the, the, the tensions within the country at the time, tensions within that, that, that dressing room. Um, but here's the boss uh, of, of the nation um, living up in, in the Blue Room and, 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 and the stadium itself. I, it's, it, I think it speaks a lot, that, that those pictures in, in that particular moment. <laughs> it's, it's a remarkable event in the Rangers history because I mean, we've spoke many a time referred to the fact that Sunis was the embodiment of Thatcherism through that time whether you want to call him a yuppie or you know, a young entrepreneur Murray was the exact same kind of mould and it was really no secret that that's what, that's what it was he, he kind of alluded to it many a time but the fact that she was embraced so warmly into Ibrox was for such a divisive figure mm. in Scotland at that point and let's face it, you know, we're all true blues, but that didn't always extend to that because, you know, we'd have very working, we, we have, but at that time we definitely had a very working class uh, support and fan base. And, you know, I know my dad was no fan of Thatcher. Well, just, just uh, for context, she, the year or two years before Scottish Cup final 1988, she was mm-hmm. um, asked to be the, the, the guest of honour to present the cup. And usually the guest of honour goes out to meet the team's on the pitch. This was Celtic against Dundee United. They couldn't do it. The, the Daily Record had published a show the red card to Thatcher, um, or just a red card to cut out and, and bring to the game. Basically, she had to meet players in the bowels of the main stand. Some Celtic players met her in a, an old pool room. Um, it, it, it was That's how toxic you know she was. Yeah. And, and listen, the majority of the Rangers dressing room didn't want her there. So, and probably the majority of the support again go and follow follow the uh, go and follow follow read the read the the fans you know the time absolute fury um, that this woman represents what Sunis and Murray represent um, is ruining Rangers it's not the same club anymore etc etc et um, but that that energy ambition the the the, the practices that the, the Sunis revolution put into place were all hers really or all of that 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 that, that kind of um, school of thought, um, and there are still many many Rangers fans to this day, and it amuses me, who profess a hatred of of, of Thatcher and a love for Sunnis and haven't quite joined the dots as to why that doesn't quite work out or speak so um, bleakly about Britain in the nineteen eighties, but so warmly about this Rangers period of dominance and haven't quite joined the dots as to how the two are related and there's a bit of cognitive dissonance there um, but it was yeah, quite the symbolic moment um, of it, where Rangers were and where Celtic were was in the past um, their stadium, their outlook um, represented that where Rangers were going was very much the future gentlemen, um, they were in talks with 
UEFA, the talks with other clubs about breaking away at the forefront of all that. Um, but that would be in a few more years to come. In the meantime, Rangers had a title to secure. Um, we'll get to that next week. McCoy and Johnston have to come to the fore because Celtic are coming to Ibrox. And after five or six games without a win, it was probably time to put that right. Although, if you wanted to see it, you would need a dish on your house. Talk about the future. Thank you, Andy. My pleasure as always. Thank you, John. Thank you. And until next week, bye for now. Sports Social Podcast Network.